Let us pray. O God, who by thy Holy Spirit dost give to some the word of wisdom, to others the word of knowledge, and to others the word of faith, we praise thy name for the gifts of grace manifested in thy servant, St. Paul. And we pray that thy church may never be destitute of such gifts. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who with thee in the same spirit liveth and reigneth, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome, everybody. And um, may I say, uh, the elect showed up today, um, given all this weather and everything. Very fine British weather, but it's good to see you today. We are in Acts chapter 17. We're going to begin this afternoon at verse 16. And we'll go ahead and read through the end of the chapter, the second part of this chapter, and then come back and take a look at it. This is, of course, Paul's visit to one of the great cities of the ancient world. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some of the men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. 
Uh, we've been noticing over the course of our last several studies that Paul, as he has been going around the ancient world and ministering and proclaiming the gospel, has begun to focus almost exclusively on the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world. He's been focusing primarily on the great cities of the ancient world. Now that hadn't always been the case with Paul. We said that when he initially started off, he went through whole geographical regions preaching. For example, he went to the island of Cyprus. But then as time went by, he began to focus on these great metropolitan areas. And we said that this was part of Paul's missionary strategy. He recognized that if you want to get the gospel out to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible, the best way perhaps to do that was to focus on the areas where there was a concentration of the population. Cities have always been very important in the history of the world because cities are the places where everything comes and goes. Uh, these are the great centers of commerce, the great centers of fashion, the great centers of idea. And so Paul knew that if he could establish a Christian presence in the great metropolitan areas of the ancient world, it wouldn't be long before the gospel, like everything else, was coming and going. And so we've seen that Paul has focused on great cities. Uh, we saw that he went to Philippi, for example. He's going to go to Ephesus. He'll go to Corinth. Eventually, he'll make it to Rome. Indeed, Paul's missionary journey, in a sense, the gospel missionary story, began in a city, didn't it? It began in that great city in Antioch, Antioch in Syria, and before that, it actually started in the great spiritual center of the ancient world, which was Jerusalem. Well, here in Acts chapter 17, we find Paul coming to one of the great cities. Some would go so far as to say the greatest city of the ancient world, at least the greatest city that Paul has visited thus far, and that is the city of Athens, Greece. There, I think there are few cities uh, in popular imagination that conjure up more romantic notions or ideas than Athens, Greece. Now, there are cities perhaps like Venice, but when you think about ancient history, the image that immediately comes to mind is that of Athens. And it's really not surprising because there are few cities in all of antiquity that come even close. In fact, you might even go so far as to say there are few cities today or at any point in history, that even come close to rivaling Athens as it was in the 5th century B.C. Uh, it was an extraordinary place. And it actually came about as the result of armed conflict. Uh, the story goes that in the 5th century B.C., the Persians had decided to invade Europe. The Persian Empire in this period was the largest, most impressive empire the world had ever seen. It stretched all the way from the borders of Europe the whole way to the Indus River. It was a massive empire. And the Persians tried twice to invade Europe and conquer it as well. And twice they were turned back. And they were turned back on both occasions by the Greeks. Now that's really quite remarkable because when the Persians invaded Europe, they invaded with an army, some estimates say, as many as a million men marching under arms. The Greeks at any one point were only able to muster perhaps 100,000 men. And yet they not only managed to fend off the Persians, they actually drove them back in disarray and defeat. It's the stuff of which legends are made. Uh, two of the great battles that are associated with this period, of course, is the Great Battle of Marathon in 490 B.C. You're familiar with that. And the naval battle that was associated with the same campaign, the Battle at Salamis 
in which the Greek boats, the Greek ships, managed to turn back the massive Persian fleet in disorder and defeat. So this was a great period uh, at the beginning of the Greek Renaissance. Uh, having won that great victory, the Greeks began to rebuild their civilization. Uh, when the Persians came through, they really destroyed the land. I mean, they destroyed it uh, in, in a greater totality than anything Britain endured during the Second World War. So if you think about the Blitz and you think about what happened in places like London, the East End of London, or you think of what happened in Liverpool or Manchester, these great manufacturing centers in World War II, it was great devastation that the German Luftwaffe brought to Great Britain during those years. And yet what happened in Greece was much worse. I mean, the city was basically, the, the cities, the great city-states were laid bare. And yet the Greeks rose up with a will and they rebuilt their civilization, and they rebuilt it in grand style. Uh, this was the glorious period of antiquity, and as I said, there's hardly any civilization over the course of all of history that even rivals what Greece, and particularly Athens, was like during this time period. This was the age of, of democracy, the first real democracy in the history of the world. The Greek city-states in which there were elected officials that governed the people. So it wasn't a case where you had monarchs or monarchies. This was a case in which you had elected officials, and they were answerable to the people. The first democracy, really, in the history of the world was here in Athens during this time period. This was also the age of the great classical plays. We're all familiar with the Greek tragedies, the Greek comedies. This was the great period of that uh, in the 5th century B.C., this was also the age of philosophy. This is the time of Socrates and Plato. It's hard to imagine, but all of these people living, all of these things happening, this, this great ferment of ideas. This was also the great age of art. Praxiteles uh, developed the, the great classical forms that would be used from this time period right on down to the age of Michelangelo, who would employ precisely the same forms in his own artistic creations. So this was just a magnificent period in the history of ancient Greece and in the history of the world. As I said, there was really nothing like it in all of recorded history. And yet, it was a very short-lived period. This period of glorious ferment lasted perhaps 50 years, at which point the Athenians got into a very costly and destructive war with the Spartans, a conflict that lasted for 27 years. And at the end of it, the city was laid waste again. Uh, there were still vestiges of its glory, uh, but it was a downhill spiral from this point forward. So that by the time that the Apostle Paul arrived in the first century, Greece was, in the words of one commentator, E.M. Blakelock, in the late afternoon of her glory. She was not what she had once been. Now, she was still the intellectual center of the ancient world. That's what she became known as. But even her artists and her philosophers were not like the great minds of the previous centuries. They were, at best, imitators of people like Plato and Socrates and the great artists who had gone before. But the city was in the late afternoon of its glory. Still regarded, as I said, as the intellectual center of the ancient world, but a far cry from what she had once been. 
Now you have to ask yourself, what would it have been like for Paul to visit Athens? I can't help but think that of all the places that Paul had visited thus far, he probably looked forward to going to Athens more than any other. Why is that? Well, I think one of the reasons is because it was the sort of place that an intellectual giant like Paul would have enjoyed seeing. All the indicators suggest to us that the Apostle Paul, and we talked about this some time ago when we looked at Paul's conversion, we looked at Paul's background, Paul had a very fine education. In fact, of all the apostles, Paul was by far the most well-educated in terms of a formal education. You have to remember that Peter and James and John were nothing but common fisher folk. Now, that's not to say that they weren't intelligent men. That's not to say that they weren't blessed with the wisdom that comes from the Holy Spirit. Of course they were. But in terms of a formal education, Paul really was a towering intellect. First of all, he had a very fine religious education. We know that he was trained under the foremost rabbi of his time, Gamaliel, and he was trained as a Pharisee. So Paul was trained, in a classical sense, as a Jewish lawyer. He was an expert in the law, and he thought in a logical sort of way. Great rational mind. But there's also a great deal to indicate that Paul, especially from this encounter that he had here with the people, the Athenians here in this city, there's a great deal to indicate that Paul also had a very fine classical education. Because when he engages the philosophers here on Mars Hill at the Areopagus, he is able to quote from some of their same poets. He's familiar, for example, with Cleanthes and Aratus. Now, Peter and uh, James and John would not have been familiar with the great classicists, but Paul was. And that's not surprising because Paul was raised where? in Tarsus, in modern-day Turkey. And Tarsus was one of the great university centers of the ancient world. It was a very fine university there. Paul was the son of a Roman citizen, which tells us that he would have had access to that kind of an educational system. So the fact that he can quote from these Greek poets indicates to us that he had a very fine classical as well as a very fine religious education. So when Paul was going to Athens, I can't help but imagine that this was the sort of place that he was excited to see. Somebody has suggested it would be like a, a Yale man going to visit Oxford, a, a university that is very much like the university that he attended, except even older and more distinguished. Uh, no offense to any Yale men that happen to be out there. Notice I didn't even mention Harvard, but at any rate. But I think that that's probably the way it was for Paul. This is the sort of place that he would love to go. This is the sort of place where he'd love to engage the people. A place where he could sharpen his mind and his debating skills. And yet, Luke makes it very clear, when Paul actually arrived in the city of Athens, he was very discouraged. He must have been impressed by the city. It would have been hard not to be impressed by Athens. Some of you have actually been to Athens with me. That's my hope if we get through all this litigation to be able to lead a trip overseas in the footsteps of St. Paul and visit some of these great cities. And one of the places we will see is Athens. One of the great thrills of my life was to be able to preach a sermon on Mars Hill. I actually did it. It was a marvelous experience. 
And I imagine that Paul really looked forward to this. But when he got there, Luke tells us that he was provoked within himself. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that is for his companions, you'll recall that he left Silas behind. We're told that while he was waiting for them, for his companions, he was provoked within himself as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul would have been impressed by Athens, but he was not overawed by it. I think that's something very important for you and for me. There is much in our society, much in our culture today that is impressive. But as Christians, while we can be impressed by all of the great advances that have taken place in terms of science and technology, etc., we have to be careful not to be overawed by these things. And Paul, though he was impressed, he was not overawed by these things. As a matter of fact, he found the city to be a rather depressing place. And he found it to be a depressing place for a number of reasons. Uh, the first reason that he found it to be a very depressing place was that it was a place that was full of idols. Now, Paul was going there expecting to find intellectuals. And what he found was a city that was filled with all of this polytheistic religion. In fact, they said that it was easier to find a god in Athens in the first century than it was to find a man. You know, there, there are some places, there are some towns that there's a bar or a pub on every corner. In Athens, there was a temple on practically every corner. Now, those of you who have been to Athens, you can see this. If you've ever seen the Acropolis, there are all kinds of temples up there. The great temple to Athena, of course, but there's also the temple to the goddess Nike, to the god Poseidon. Um, there's a temple to the god Hephaestus, the god of the metal workers, the great temple to Zeus at the bottom of the Acropolis. All of these temples everywhere, even today, that's the thing that we go to see. Well, in Paul's day, these things were still constructed, they were still in their full flower, and they were still being used. And that was very depressing to him, that these people were still seeking after God and worshiping all of these pagan deities. And it wasn't just that the city was filled with idols. I think Paul also found the philosophy that permeated, the worldview that permeated the city of Athens to be equally distressing. Because really, your worldview, how you understand life, how you look at the creation, depends upon your view of God, doesn't it? And, and the Greeks, quite frankly, had a very depressing view of history that flowed directly from their view of the deities. For instance, the Greeks really didn't believe that life, human existence, had any ultimate purpose whatsoever. They believed that history had no direction and no value. In this sense, they were just like Henry Ford. Somebody once asked Henry Ford what he thought of history, and he said, it's bunk. History is bunk, he said. It's just the succession of one damned thing after another. Well, let me tell you, that is exactly how the Greeks looked at history. There's no rhyme, there's no reason, there's no purpose to it. In fact, the Greeks believed that history and life were cyclical. It was just a circle. It was like a carnival barker's wheel of fortune. Round and round and round she goes, and where she stops, 
Nobody knows. That was the idea. You know how it is. Take a look at the seasons of the year. Spring turns into summer. Summer turns into autumn. Autumn turns into winter. And then winter turns what? Back into spring again. And it just goes on and on and on like that. There's no beginning. There's no end. There's no direction. There's no value to it whatsoever. And that's the way life is, folks. That's the way they looked at it. And, and that worldview that has no direction, no purpose, no value, no point to it whatsoever was born out in the philosophers that the Apostle Paul met there in Athens, who as bad as the idolatry was and as depressing as it was, these people were even more depressing, I think, to Paul. The Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, who were the Epicureans? Well, the Epicureans were the followers of a philosopher by the name of Zeno. And because they believed that life and history were cyclical, there was no purpose, no direction whatsoever to it, they believed that the best thing that a person could do was enjoy life here and now. They had a very simple perspective on things. If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, avoid it. Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die. Or as we like to put it in our, in our parlance today, life's a beach, <laughs> and then you die. That's what the Epicureans believed. Because life has no direction, history has no purpose, you might as well enjoy it right now because tomorrow you're going to die. So if it feels good, well, go ahead and embrace it and go for it. If it doesn't feel good, avoid it. Now, when we hear that term Epicurean today, we have a tendency to think of hedonists. These people were not hedonists. This is not to suggest that they were just giving themselves over to anything. But it does tell us that they believed that life has no real value, no real significance. So make the best of it. You only go around once, so grab all the gusto you can get. Let me ask you a question. Are there any Epicureans around today? Well, you better believe it. We live in an Epicurean culture, don't we? We live in a materialist world where people are convinced that the things that you can see and touch and taste, those things that you can experience with your senses, these are the only things that matter. So you might as well enjoy this and do your best to avoid any pain that's out there in the world. Let me tell you something, that is a depiction, not a first century Athenian culture, that is a picture of 21st century American culture. That is exactly where many people, particularly young people are today. And it flows directly from their view of history and it flows directly from their view of God. But the Epicureans weren't the only people that Paul encountered there that day. We're told that he also encountered what? The Stoics. Now, who are the Stoics? Well, the Epicureans, as I said, were the followers of a man by the name of Epicurus. Maybe I didn't say that. Did I say that? All right. The Stoics were the followers of a man by the name of Zeno. Now, basically, what the Stoics believed were the same thing that the Epicureans did about history being cyclical, 
no real rhyme, no real reason to it, no real purpose. But they were a little more noble than the Epicureans. They tended to believe that you never know what life's going to hit you with tomorrow, so the best thing that you can do is sort of grin and bear it. How many of you have ever heard that expression before? Sort of stiff upper lip. The British way, at least the British way before the death of Princess Diana. Sort of grin and bear it. You've got to sort of tough it out. Try to be as noble as you possibly can. And in many respects, the Stoics were noble. People like Marcus Aurelius were trained in the Stoic lifestyle, and they went on to do great things. But their life was still pretty bleak. Stuff happens. Ever heard that expression? Maybe you don't say stuff, but you know what I mean. <laughs> stuff happens. So what do you do? Well, you just sort of grin and bear it. That was the view of the Stoics. And Paul found these philosophers as depressing as he found the idolatry of Athens. Now, why did he find the Epicureans to be depressing? Well, because Paul was a what? A Jew. He'd been steeped in the Old Testament tradition. He didn't believe that history was cyclical. He believed that history had a rhyme and a reason. It had a purpose, a direction to it. Perhaps some of you can recall back during World War II when you would go to see a movie they would always have these newsreels that would be shown beforehand. Uh, some of that was in the 40s and the 50s. Uh, it was a whole series that was put out by the Time Life Corporation called The March of Time. And they would show all of these depictions of world events. Uh, during the war, they would oftentimes show all of these you know, maneuvers that were taking place, whether it was in the European theater or the marching of the army and the advances of the, of the troops in the Pacific theater, the island hopping and all of that. And even though from time to time, they would depict a setback, a military setback in Europe or a defeat in, in the Pacific theater. Still, the very name of the theater, of, of the, the, the newsreel said it all. It was the march of time. There was a sense in which there was still progress. And that if there was a military setback, it was what? It was temporary at most. The whole series would begin with this roll of drums and the blast of a trumpet, and it just gave you a sense of confidence and hopefulness, and the world of the 20th century seemed to be on the upswing and great advances in science and technology, and the world was moving in a good direction. Now that is no longer the belief today, but that was the belief at one point, at least in the 20th century. And even though Paul would have certainly tempered that, he would have agreed with the sense that, yes, history does have a direction to it. In fact, I've always said that if you want to understand the Christian view of history, a good way to do that is to think of the 1812 Overture. Now, you're all familiar with Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. You know what that piece of music's about, don't you? You know, it's a funny thing. It's always played around the 4th of July. It has nothing to do with America or the 4th of July. The 1812 Overture is the story of the Russians beating back Napoleon's invasion of Moscow. And it's a marvelous, stirring piece of music. But I want you to think about it. If you're familiar with the 1812 Overture, how it goes. It begins in a very quiet way. It's an almost plaintive piece of music. 
And then it begins to build, doesn't it? And as it builds, you can begin to picture the story. All of a sudden in the distance, you hear what? Well, you, see, you hear French horns, yes, but you hear a particular piece of music, a, 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 you know, so, sort of a submerged piece of music in the midst of this greater piece. You hear La Marseillaise. And that's, that's the what? The invasion of the French army, you see, as it's making its way toward Moscow. And you can hear plaintively in the background, God save the Tsar, the Russian national anthem at that time. And you know the piece begins to build. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 But then it builds, doesn't it? There it is. Look at that. Right on cue. It builds, doesn't it? Thank you, Doug. I appreciate that. I was right on. And it gets to that point where it's and you think that that's the climax, don't you? But you quickly discover that it's, it's not the climax. You can hear church bells ringing as that's going on. But they're sounding the toxin. They're, they're sounding the alarm. And then after that great, all of that, that, that great music, the piece gets quiet again, doesn't it? And so you think that's the end, but it's not the end, is it? All of that is a build-up to a grand and glorious finale in which you can hear the retreating of the French army and you can hear God save the king, or God save the czar, and you can hear the church bells again, but now they are pealing in celebration and you can hear cannons. And, and when I worked um, in, in Maryland, the Maryland Symphony Orchestra would come out to Antietam National Battlefield and do a benefit concert on July 4th, and they actually had real artillery firing off. And the guns would go off, but they're no longer, at the end of that piece of music, being fired, what? In hostility, they're being fired in celebration. It's a salute. And the piece ends gloriously. And if you're sitting on your hands, you're dead. You can't sit still when the 1812 Overture reaches that great and glorious climax. Paul would say that's history. That's the Christian view of history. It may start off small and quiet and plaintiff. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. But the whole history of the Old Testament is building toward what? To this wonderful pinnacle when all of a sudden that word which called all things into existence becomes flesh and makes his dwelling among us. And the word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. Bethlehem, 33 years on this earth, healing, open the eyes of the blind, cleansing the lepers, mounting the arms of the cross, and rising gloriously from the dead. And you think, well, that's got to be the end of the story. But that's not the end of the story. It gets quiet for a little period until all of a sudden what? It builds toward that grand and glorious finale. When that one who came in great humility to be born in Bethlehem returns again in glory. And how does the hymn say it? And every eye shall now behold him, robed in dreadful majesty. Those who set it not and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree. Deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. Paul says that's history. That's what it's all about. 
It's not directionless. It's not meaningless. It has a power, it has a purpose, and it has a direction. And our lives are caught up in it. It is a great cosmic play, and we each have a part to play. And so to look at these people, to look at these Epicureans and these Stoics who felt that life had no purpose, oh, how depressing was that? So depressing. And so depressing to think that there is no point in terms of morality, that there's no sense of justice, that there's no sense of right and wrong, good and evil. Just the succession of one damn thing after another. Oh, how depressing that was to Paul. So when he came to Athens, he came and he was impressed by all that it was, by its magnificence, its former glory. But he was not, as I said, overawed by it. My friends, as Christians, we should be very much impressed. We should not be those who are critical of the accomplishments of our time. We should be thankful that all that has been done, the great advances in terms of government in the world, we can be thankful that democracy did not die, that it was resurrected in the 18th century by our founding fathers. We can be thankful for the advances that have taken place in science and technology. We should not be looking down on these things. Science, my friends, is nothing more than the exercise, as someone has said, of thinking God's thoughts after him. Many Christians are very critical of the advances in science. We should not be. You know, sometimes we look back on history through rose-colored glasses and we think, oh, the good old days. Really? Were they really all that good? I mentioned it in a sermon just a couple of weeks ago that some of you can remember a day when the sight of a person afflicted with polio was common. How many of you remember seeing people afflicted with polio? What was good about that? How many of you are thankful that there's a vaccine now where we don't have to worry about that sort of thing? This, this is good news to us, isn't it? I've got a chronic illness that had it not been for medication, I would not be alive today. I'm very thankful for advances in medical science today. Praise the Lord. Anybody who's ever had cancer can rejoice in the fact that there are means of treating it. Things that robbed people of their life and their vitality in a former age have now been dealt with, and we can be thankful for it. But while we can be thankful for the advantages that we see in these realms, in these disciplines, we should not be overawed by them. Because they are not ends in and of themselves. That's how Paul was when he came to Athens. Now, when Paul got there to Athens, he gave a great address. And we're going to take a look at it in closer detail. But what I want you to notice is that Paul's sermon here was a classic sermon. Most sermons have an introduction. Paul has an introduction here. He has four points. Some sermons only have three points. Most of mine only have three points because I've discovered that that's about all people can sustain these days or handle. Uh, somebody has once said, the mind can only um, absorb uh, what the bottom can endure. So I suppose that <laughs> it just depends on how long you go. Um, 
But Paul's sermon had four points, and then he had a call. He had a call, an altar call, if you will. What were the four points? Well, that God is the creator of all things. Two, that God is the sustainer of all things. Three, that God is the ordainer of all things. And the fourth thing was that we should seek him because of all of this. And having sought him, found him, and then Paul's great call to repentance. Paul's great call to repentance. Now I want to take a look at this in closer detail, and I want to do that because what Paul does here in Athens, I think, is what we need to be able to do in the 21st century. I've said to you before, one of the remarkable things about the book of Acts is that it's not just a record of past history. It's not just a record of how the church operated in the first century. It really is a blueprint for how you and I, as Christians, should be operating in the 21st century. Paul was operating, functioning, ministering in a pre-Christian culture, pre-Christian, first century, Greco-Roman culture. You and I are functioning in a post-Christian, 21st century, American culture. But the similarities between those two cultures, they're striking. So the same challenges that Paul faced in first century Athens, you and I would face in 21st century New York or Chicago, London or Paris. And even here in Charleston. Because we live in what? In a global world. You know, it used to take longer for people and ideas and news to travel. Doesn't take very long today, does it? My goodness, I can be today in Cairo, Egypt, faster than it would take people in a former age to travel across this country, or to travel to Chicago, or to travel to Maine. So we live in a very small world in that sense. And so the differences between a place like Charleston and the ideas that permeate so many of the great cities of our world well, they're not that different after all. So I want us to take a look at how Paul ministered in this kind of a context. First thing I want you to notice is that Paul found that point of contact that we talked about last week. If you're going to speak to people, you need to understand where they're coming from. And Paul recognized that the point of contact with the Athenians was their spirituality. He acknowledges that they are what? A people who are at least religious. Now, their religion may be pagan, it may be polytheistic, but they're religious. They acknowledge that there is what? Something beyond themselves. That there is a higher power, a, a greater intellect, if you will. Because when he walked through that city, what did he see? Temples. Temples everywhere. And so in verse 23, he begins this great address by saying, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, we've said already Christianity is really not about religion. It's about what? About a relationship. But this at least is a starting point. You always have to find a starting point. If you're going to minister with somebody, you've got to find a point of contact, a point of, of commonality. And this is Paul's point of commonality. As I walk through your city, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Well, good for you. How do I know you're religious? For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship, and I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. 
the unknown God. In other words, Paul says, you recognize that this life is not all there is. That may be what your philosophy is telling you. That may even be what your religion is telling you. But the fact that you have a temple to an unknown God indicates that you are still searching for something more. There is something within you that is bearing testimony to the fact that this life, regardless of what those Stoic philosophers and those Epicureans are telling you, you know in your spirit there is something more than this. A temple even to an unknown God. Now that precise temple, that precise altar has never been found. But we have lots of references in ancient sources to temples and altars like this in and around Athens. Evidently, the Athenians were afraid that they had these temples to all these other gods, that if they missed one, he was going to get them. And so what did they do? They erected a monument to him, to the unknown God. Why do you suppose God is unknown? Why was God unknown to these people? They couldn't see him. Well, there are lots of things in life, I think Paul would say, that you and I can't see, but they're still true. How many of you, I'm going to talk about this in a sermon coming up the last, you're getting a little foretaste of a sermon that I'm going to preach on Christ the King Sunday. How many of you have ever seen gravity? How many of you believe in the law of gravity? Anybody out there that doesn't? If not... Let me hold something over your head and drop it. <laughs> You'll believe. How many of you have ever seen gravity? You've seen the effects of gravity, but how many of you have ever seen gravity? It's an invisible force, but it's a real thing, isn't it? I think Paul's argument would be just because something can't be seen doesn't necessarily mean that it's not real. You can see the effect of the wind, but you certainly can't see the wind. I don't think that's what Paul was really saying. What Paul was not talking about is not a belief in God, but a relationship with God. That's what these people were really longing for. Not to know if there was a God. They believed that there was a pantheon of deities. What they were searching for in their spirit was that which gave life purpose and meaning. Why is God unknown to so many people? Well, I'll tell you, it's not because of God. It's not because of God. Keep your finger there in Acts chapter 17 and turn back to Romans, to your right. Turn to Romans chapter 1 because what Romans chapter 1 really is is the great sermon or the great chapter on the unknown God. <laughs> what does Paul say? Beginning... At verse 18, Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, what? Suppress the truth. Notice what Paul is saying there. He's not saying that the problem is ignorance. The problem is is a suppression of the truth. It is a willful refusal to believe. To believe what? To believe the evidence that God exists. How do we know that that's what Paul means? Look at verse 19 and following. For what can be known about God is plain to them. 
Paul is saying it's, it's evident. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that what? Man is without excuse. That's Paul's way of saying that atheism, now we're not talking about agnosticism, but Paul is very clear, atheism, if a person really takes a look at the evidence, is an untenable position. Why? Because God has made himself known in the things that have been made. His signature is written all across the created order. You know, you have to teach children not to believe. A belief in the creator comes naturally to every single one of us. It is hardwired into us. C.S. Lewis deals with this in the opening chapters of Mere Christianity. The very notion of morality is hardwired into us, a sense of justice, of right and wrong. He says it doesn't matter how primitive the culture is. You give one child an orange and you don't give the other one the orange, and this child takes the orange from the first child, the first child is going to say in his own way, hey, give me that back, that belongs to me. Where does that sense of justice come from? Lewis says it's hardwired into us. So the problem, you see, is not that God has kept himself hidden, a deus absconditus. It's not a hidden God. God has made himself known, but man has what? Suppressed the truth. Suppressed the truth. Now, Paul would certainly acknowledge the fact that the creation, what we call general revelation, can tell us that God exists. It doesn't tell us what kind of a God exists. You need to understand that there are limits to natural revelation. All Paul is saying is that the created order is enough for a person to desire to seek God. It does not tell us what kind of a God exists. Now, if everything's going your way and you're standing out on your dock and you're on a tidal creek and it's a beautiful sunset and the dolphins are out there playing and you're looking out and you can say, how can someone not believe in God? It's a totally different situation, isn't it? When there's a hurricane that is destroying your dock, ripping off your roof, and destroying personal property. What kind of a God exists? It's the same nature, my friends. What the created order reveals to us is that a God exists. It doesn't tell us what kind of a God exists. For that, you need a different type of revelation. Not general revelation, but what? Special revelation. And that is precisely what we get in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. You want to know what God, the creator God, is like? Look into the face of his Son. Now, Paul's whole point is that God is unknown because we suppress the truth. God has made himself known in the created order, and if we seek after him, and he's going to flesh this out in the sermon, we will find him. Seek and ye shall find and the door will be open to you. Isn't that what we're taught? 
In other words, if you seek this creator God, he will reveal himself to you, supremely in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. What is Paul doing here in Acts chapter 17? Paul is exercising his apologetic skills. Before he can preach the gospel to these people, he's got to break down their walls of prejudice. I would argue to you that oftentimes that's what we have to do in our culture. Before the people are capable of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, you and I have to break down the walls of prejudice that oftentimes exist. The walls of prejudice that our culture and their intellect sometimes erect. What does Peter say in 1 Peter chapter 3? He says, have an answer for the hope that is within you. With gentleness and reverence. Do we oftentimes as Christians have an answer for the hope that is within us? I've said to you before, one of the most irritating bumper stickers I ever see is that bumper sticker that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That simply isn't true. God may have said it. I don't dispute that. You may believe it. But in our world, does that settle it? Not in terms of evangelism. Not in terms of reaching an unbelieving culture with the good news. And Paul understood that. So I find it very interesting that the first thing that Paul did when he came into Athens is what he did in the synagogues. He did it in a different way. But he did the same thing. Paul did not immediately go into Athens and begin to what? Open the scriptures and preach a sermon. He did what? He reasoned with them. Now, Paul reasoned with the Jews in the synagogues from the scriptures, but he reasoned with them, proving that Jesus was the Christ. Here, he can't reason with them from the scriptures. Why? Because they don't acknowledge the scriptures. So what has he got to do? He's got to reason from natural revelation to specific revelation. We've got to have the ability to do that as well. One of the most impressive things about Paul is that he's versatile. He understands his audience. It's the same message, but how it's proclaimed in a Jewish context is different from the way that he proclaims it in an unbelieving Greco-Roman culture. If we're going to be effective in sharing the faith, we need to understand our audience. So that's the first thing I want you to notice. Paul is employing apologetics. Now, what does the word apologetic mean? The Greek word is apologia, and it literally means a defense. Paul is giving a defense, a reason to believe. I want you to understand something about Christian faith today. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. It's not believing because there's a lack of evidence. One of the things you need to understand about the Christian faith is the Christian faith is an historical faith. And there is ample evidence for the Christian faith. Jesus did not get upset with Thomas because Thomas required evidence in order to believe. Jesus got upset with Thomas because he already had ample evidence and still required more. I mean, you have to ask yourself, if you were Thomas, now I'm sympathetic to Thomas, I've got to be honest with you, but you do have to ask yourself, if you had been with Jesus for three years and seen him calm the waves and you had seen him cleanse lepers on the border of Samaria and you had seen him raise at least three people from the dead, 
exercise power over demon-possessed individuals. And Jesus says, now listen, guys, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die, be betrayed at the hands of my own people, and on the third day rise again. You might want to say, well, you know, he's got a pretty good batting average so far. And furthermore, when the other disciples said, we have seen the Lord, what did Thomas say? I don't believe it. I don't believe you. I don't believe what Jesus has said. And I don't care what has happened in the past. I will not believe it unless I can take my hand and put it in his side. Unless I can take my fingers and put them in the nail prints, I will not believe it. Listen, Jesus provided ample evidence. The first thing that he did when he showed himself to the disciples was, come look at my scars. Look at the wounds. Our whole faith is predicated on what? An historical event. The physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me tell you something right now. Here's permission never to come back to this Bible study again. If Jesus Christ did not rise physically, bodily from the grave, you're wasting your time here today. And so am I. So ours is a faith that is grounded in, in real events. And there's plenty of evidence for it. Perhaps this year when I preach on Easter, that's one of the things that I'll tackle, the evidence for the resurrection. Now, notice I said evidence, not proof. You will never get proof. As a matter of fact, you'll never get proof for anything. How many of you believe that Neil Armstrong walked on the moon? Anybody out there doesn't believe that? How do you know he did? Were you there? You saw it on TV? You believe everything you see on TV, do you? You believe that one. Well, why do you believe that one? How do we know that this was not just a great plot on behalf of the United States government to fool the Russians? Oh, we all know that LBJ did it. What you have is evidence, don't you? Compelling evidence, but you don't have proof. As a matter of fact, there's only one discipline in life where you get proof, my friends, and that's mathematics. <laughs> Everything else is evidence. The question is, is it evidence beyond a reasonable doubt? That's the question, isn't it? Is it evidence beyond a reasonable doubt? Is there enough evidence for us to rationally embrace this? to reasonably believe. Well, that's what Paul is aiming at here. He's doing a very good job of breaking down the barriers. Take a look at the world around you. Do you really believe, Paul said, that all of this happened by chance or by accident? This world in which we live, do you really think that this is just the result of some sort of random, unguided process that you just crawled out of some primordial ooze and here you are today He's, he's appealing to their intellect, to these intellectual people. I think if you're going to be dealing with intellectual people, that's how you have to begin. You can't stop there because that's not enough to save anybody. But it is the starting point. Now, Paul understands that means that the gospel is never heard in isolation. It's always heard in a particular context, and you need to understand the context. The other thing that he understands is that there's a value in apologetics in that it does two things. You can't argue anybody into the kingdom of God, my friends. I want you to understand that. An argument doesn't save anybody. 
Only God the Holy Spirit can convert a heart. So apologetics does have its limitations, but it does have this value. First of all, it strengthens believers. It helps us to be confident in our faith when the barriers to belief are torn down. That gives us courage and strength and confidence, a robustness in our faith. The second thing that it does is it does help to evangelize unbelievers. It removes the reasons for doubt. It won't necessarily convert, but it does at least remove scruple and doubt. And so there's a very important place for evangelizing unbelievers when it comes to apologetics. Perhaps some of you remember a few years ago uh, at the Mere Anglicanism Conference, we had Nabil Qureshi there uh, who spoke on um, Islam. And uh, Nabil was a great apologist. Um, he died just a few weeks back as a result of stomach cancer, only in his 30s, really tragic story. Um, but Nabil understood that the purpose was to evangelize unbelievers, and in order to do that, he needed to remove the barriers of doubt. Now, sometimes you can remove all the barriers of doubt, and people still won't believe. Sometimes they won't believe because they understand that if they embrace this, there's going to be an implication for their life, and they're not ready to go there. They know that if they embrace this belief, or they embrace this deity, they embrace Jesus Christ, that means that what? They can't live the way they have been living, and they'd much rather not change. So apologetics can't argue anybody into the kingdom of God, but it certainly can remove the barriers to doubt and unbelief. Two types of apologetics. And then I'm just going to do a little excursus here for just a moment. Two types of apologetic. Positive apologetics, in which you present a positive case for the faith, and then there's defensive, negative apologetics, in which you argue against those things that are a hindrance to the faith. Paul did both of those here in Athens. We'll take a look at that next week. But once he had apologized, once Paul had defended the faith, he didn't leave it there. He went on to do what? Once he had removed the barriers of doubt, once he had provided the evidence, he then went on to proclaim the gospel. Paul always went for the sale. And as Christians, we always need to be ready to go to this for the sale. Remove any doubt that people may have about the Christian faith. Provide them with evidence for the Christian faith. But when they have been brought to what theologians call that crisis moment, don't leave them hanging there. Go for the sale. Close the deal. Invite them now on the basis of what they've heard to make a decision. They have to make a decision. You cannot stand there waffling, indecisive. If you've done your job and you've removed all the scruple and doubt, if you provided evidence for the faith and shown them that this is not an irrational thing, then you need to force them or at least bring them to the point where they are forced to make a decision one way or the other. That's exactly what Paul did in Athens. Now, you're going to see that this type of evangelism is hard. <laughs> it's hard. Why? Because it means you need to do your homework. It means you need to understand what people are thinking. 
You need to understand what the barriers to faith are. If you don't understand the culture, if you don't understand your audience, you're never going to be effective. Paul understood his audience. As I said, I don't know that Peter, James, and John could have done what Paul did here on Mars Hill. But we're on our own Mars Hill, my friends. We're on our own Mars Hill. Let me just give you an example. We are living in a culture in which many people say they don't believe in God because science has disproven God. A number of years ago, Richard Dawkins, who is regarded as one of the world's foremost intellectuals, wrote a book called The God Delusion, in which he argued that science has basically destroyed faith. But is that true? I would go so far as to argue that in the 20th century, science, rather than providing reasons for us not to believe in God, has actually done more than any other discipline to give us reasons to believe in God. I'm just going to give you a few examples of this. For starters, Big Bang cosmology. Do you know that until the dawn of the 20th century, the vast majority of cosmologists believed, as the Greeks believed, incidentally, that the universe had always existed. Some of you may recall that um, series with Carl Sagan. Was it Nature? I think it was. And he would always end it in the same way. The cosmos is all there was, is, or ever shall be. Sounds very much like a doxology, doesn't it? That was his view. This was called steady state theory. The idea that the universe is the one thing that has always existed, exists now, and always will exist. Contrary to what the book of Genesis said, that what? There was a beginning. In the beginning, what? God said, let there be. But the vast majority of cosmologists going right back to the Greeks believed that was not the case. Until in 1917, Albert Einstein developed his theory of relativity. And he couldn't believe his own calculations. <laughs> that all the indicators was that the universe had a beginning. And so he put in a fudge factor. Until in 1926, Edwin Hubble proved, as an astronomer, that the universe was ever-expanding. And if there was an ever-expanding universe, this actually upheld the theory of relativity and actually proved that the universe actually had a beginning. It was expanding because it had a starting point. And this put an end, an end to the steady state theory. But many, listen to this, many astronomers, many scientists rejected a belief in Big Bang cosmology. Do you know why? They said it sounded too religious. In fact, Albert Einstein refused to believe until he actually went out and looked through the Hubble telescope and saw the evidence of redshift, at which point he said it was like looking at the face of God. Now, that's a, that's a willful refusal to believe, isn't it? <laughs> Some people simply won't believe in spite of the evidence. But Big, Big Bang cosmology is powerful evidence that the universe didn't always exist. Well, if it didn't always exist, where did it come from? Robert Jastrow, who was for many years 
a director of NASA's Goddard Institute, said that science in the 20th century has not gone well for atheists. He said, every time we climb to the top of a mountain, and he was speaking as an agnostic, he said, every time we climb to the top of the next mountain and think that we have made the final scientific discovery, he said, lo and behold, we find another mountain. And we climb to the top of that next mountain, and we think this is the final discovery. And he said, lo and behold, there's another mountain. He said, my great fear is that one day we are going to climb to the top of the very last mountain, and when we look over the summit, we're going to see a group of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> That's powerful evidence, my friends, when people come and say, oh, science has disproven God. Really? In fact, the whole notion of the multiverse that you hear about today from time to time, the whole notion of the multiverse is an attempt to get around the idea that our universe had a singular beginning. There's no evidence whatsoever for a belief in a multiverse. It is a theoretical presupposition. But it's an attempt to get around the implications of the fact that the universe had a beginning. There was nothing, and then there was something. Boy, that sounds a lot like, and in the beginning, God said, let there be. The anthropic principle. This is the idea that the universe and life is fine-tuned for existence. Do you know that there are over 20 constants, all of which have to be just precise, not only for a universe to exist, but for a universe like ours to exist? And if any of these constants were off by even a fraction of a degree, any one of them, not only would the universe not exist, but life would not exist and life particularly as we understand it, that is sentient life, thinking life. Sir Frederick Hoyle, uh, one of Britain's most prestigious astrophysicists, who was an atheist said, this was the greatest challenge, this Goldilocks principle, that our planet was not too close to the sun or too far away from the sun, that all the gravitational forces and pulls had to be just precise. He said this was the greatest challenge to his atheism. He said, when I look at it, I have to admit, it appears as though there is some sort of super intellect in the universe that has been monkeying with the knobs. <laughs> this fine-tuning of the universe is a powerful evidence. If it's fine-tuned, there had to be a what? A tuner. We talk in physics about the laws of physics. In order to have laws, you have to have a what? A lawgiver. And perhaps the most compelling piece of evidence these days is an understanding of DNA. The building blocks of life, amino acids and so forth, DNA, a whole code by which you and I and our bodies function. This has been described as a language, a binary code, like a computer code. It determines your eye color, your skin tone, your hair. It's a code, and, and everybody's code is slightly different. And every living thing on this planet has DNA. Francis Collins, who is the director of the National Institutes of Health and the man who was the first to map the human genome, was so impressed by this 
that he converted from atheism to Christianity. And he wrote a book describing his movement from unbelief to belief. The world's foremost expert on DNA. The title of his book, The Language of God. That's what DNA is. It's a code. It's a binary code. It's information. Where does information come from? Many of you have a Bible in your laps. Where did the information on that page come from? Did it just drop out of the sky and form into letters that can be made into words that you can understand and put between the covers? We recognize that there was an intelligence behind this, don't we? Incidentally, if you're looking for a good book on the subject, that's a great book, and it's designed for lay people. You might think, oh my goodness, DNA. I don't know about that. It's a great book. Those of you particularly who are in medicine, those of you who are in science backgrounds, a great book for you to read, Francis Collins' The Language of God. And for those of you who really want to try to understand the kind of scientific world in which we're living, here's an even better book. John Lennox, God's Undertakers, Has Science Buried God? We had John Lennox at Mere Anglicanism a number of years back. Uh, he is an Oxford mathematician, and um, he's an Irishman. And he summed it up very well in that book. He was in a debate with Richard Dawkins one day, and Richard Dawkins said that Christianity is just a belief for those who are afraid of the dark. And John Lennox said atheism is simply a belief for those who are afraid of the light. Paul went to Athens. He realized the audience that he was dealing with. He removed their reasons for doubt. He provided them with evidence. And then when the time was right, he did what? He went for the sale. And that's what we'll take a look at next week when we come back together again. Paul's great sermon, not just his address, but the sermon that he gave and how he went for the sale. Thank you for indulging me for 10 minutes past the hour. I appreciate it. I have a tendency sometimes get carried away. And I apologize for that. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the Apostle Paul, for his intellect. We thank you that you provide us with minds. And we thank you, Lord, that ours is not a blind faith, it is a faith based upon evidence. Grant us the grace, Lord, and the desire and the wherewithal, but also, Lord, the willingness to go deep, to try to understand our culture, not to take the easy way out, but to go deep, to understand things, that we might be more effective witnesses for you, who is the source of all knowledge and wisdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.